Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. And welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is David Parker. My name is Luke Mason. And uh, Luke, I have a question. Is it better to live as a monster <laughs> or die a good man? Die a good man. Die a good man? <laughs> yes. Just, that's your straight up answer? Well, it's actually better to live as a good man. But that is not a, <laughs> that's not an option in my dialectic that I've created for you. Or, well, I, uh, <laughs> I refuse to be bound by the constraints of your dialectic, David. <laughs> All right. No binary choices for Luke, folks. The third path, baby. <laughs> so, no. uh, everyone, we're doing uh, Martin Scorsese's film. I think this is our first Martin Scorsese film. Yeah, and you wanted to do a and Scorsese. I wanted to do a Scorsese because he's one of my favorite directors, probably my favorite director, although Aronofsky and Nolan are up there mm. as well. But um, one of the things that I uh, enjoyed most uh, when I got into movies, as I've mentioned on this podcast before, because of my friend uh, Kendall Grant, was watching some of Scorsese's films with Kendall. And the first one we got to watch together that came out, like that he hadn't seen before, was Shutter Island. Mm. So Shutter Island is a Martin Scorsese film that was done in 2010, came out the same year as Inception did, which is interesting because it's kind of like the superstardom birth of of Leonardo DiCaprio, I would say. Right. Um, Yeah, Leonardo was definitely um, pillaging and and playing with that perennial philosophical question, where is my mind? Yeah, he he (laughs) 100% was. And uh, this is based on a book, Dennis Lehane, who also wrote uh, Mystic River and Gone Baby Gone. So he's he's written Mm. the, essentially written the screenplay. I recently watched Gone Baby Gone. It was on TV maybe three weeks ago, and since we're in the middle of this quarantine pandemic, I have a lot of time to sit at home and watch cable TV, which (laughs) who even does that anymore? (laughs) But Gone Baby Gone was on, and I was reminded what an awesome movie Casey Affleck is in that one. And I mean, that would be an awesome future episode as well. Yes. I think for us, but yeah, a, same author wrote but, the book. So he's he's written a lot of uh, blockbusters. He's obviously a good content creator, but I think that Scorsese brought it to life in a mm. in a very good way. So yeah. I'll go through the plot plot rundown. Well, I, guess. And I I have a question for you though, oh. just out of curiosity, because I don't even think I asked you this. So when you you know we talk a little bit about well, what's what episodes are we going to do? What future stories, movies, book, etc. And you kind of brought up you want to do a Scorsese. Now, obviously, <laughs> in one sense, that narrows it down. And in another sense, it doesn't narrow it down at all. <laughs> right. Because there are so many, so many Scorsese films. So what yeah. was it about Shutter Island as opposed to like Goodfellas or Casino or Taxi Driver, uh, The Departed? Silent. Uh, yeah. didn't he, And didn't he do Gangs in New York? Was that Scorsese? Or was that... Not I, I can't remember the answer to that one, but okay. I, all the other ones. It's um, violent enough. I think it's again. like as I said at the very beginning, 
Um, this was kind of the film because of this because this isn't the one me, I would have guessed. Right. Right. Like it's like you know how you sometimes get an answer from someone and you're like. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Or, oh, I see where they're coming from, but it never would have been my prediction. Right. So what is it? Well, I tie a lot of this podcast mentally to the joy that I experienced in university with Kendall. Oh, okay. uh, Especially movies, I imagine. And movies, particularly, because he was the one. I loved books before Kendall, but I think he was the one that made me really appreciate the genre of movies beyond something that you just enjoy. Right. Got it. Got it. Uh, And something that you can talk about for hours and hours and hours afterwards, Mm, right? Um, and I think even, and also, um, one of the things I love about Kendall is in stories, he can be a bit of a conspiracy theorist. So oh, really? for a while, so? only in stories, right? But it's like, when you see the end, he's like, now here's the real question. <laughs> was he actually insane? Uh, yeah. Right? right. Or was he just forced sure, into that sure. moment? Right. And so we would have hours long conversations. Sounds like a prototype for this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like you were getting prepared. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that was, uh. So I think my if you if I'm just going with my associations, mm. I associate this podcast a lot with those conversations. Sure, makes sense. Uh, this was one of the first movies that I had conversations like that <laughs> about. So I was like, oh, and that was that was my first actually introduction to Scorsese was Shutter Island. Was Shutter Island. Oh, interesting. So, so my association with him probably on a personal level very different than most people's. Mm. Uh, I, mean, I think I may have seen Goodfellas, but there was a time in my life, for most of my life, mm. where I'd actually never thought about the directors of movies. Oh, it's yeah. just not a. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. part well, of well, and most of Scorsese, most of Scorsese's filmography growing up, you and I would definitely not have been allowed to no, watch. No, wasn't. <laughs> so yeah, so might well, not even have been till university where you even started watching those movies. Very much so. Yeah. But I think uh, it was again Kendall who introduced me to the idea of loving a director and like ah. looking at a director's works in the same the way auteur. you look at like uh, an author's <laughs> works, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think yeah, I think that's why um, for me anyway, mm. and also. I think a theme that we've not really talked about is madness and insanity and, and trusting men- your own mind. And um, mental health versus mental illness in general. Exactly. Yeah. So I And I think... I, that was my thought too. Particularly this in this time where uh, I personally am finding my mental health is is something I have to focus on mm-hmm. a lot more. It's under strain more than normal. Exactly. The self-isolation going on. And, and I've, yeah, I've found that... Being isolated, maybe my mental health wasn't as good as I thought it was, and this is just exposing mm, interesting uh, little ah. gaps in my armor that need to be filled. So and there's so, a, there's a, a nice movie. little <laughs> serendipity here for you. Yeah, and a movie about mental illness. Yeah, uh, and a Scorsese one. And which a Scorsese one. I was like, do. this kind of fits with everything we're trying to do. Cool. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Now, some of that might be me just post-rationalizing my pick first. So how many times would you say you've seen Shutter Island? Probably three. Three? Yeah. And I, yeah, just literally before we started mm-hmm. this, finished my third view. Yeah, I've seen it twice. Obviously, the second time was just a little bit... Oh, yeah, you you were... Just, so <laughs> this obviously won't mean anything to it if you listen to there, but David just finished watching it like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> before we for started us to this. start recording yeah. this. And I watched it like maybe five days ago. And then I realized... The only other time I watched it was at your parents' house. Oh, really? In the basement. Was I there? Uh, you were, but you weren't watching it. I was oh. just watching it by myself. Oh, okay. And and it was a little creepy. I had to keep the lights yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> There's moments in that movie that are definitely some some scary moments. Yeah. yeah so um, for anyone who hasn't seen Shutter Island, do you want to give it a little plot rundown? Right. So uh, we're introduced to a character named Andrew, but he doesn't go by Andrew at the beginning. We're introduced to him. And for the whole first three quarters of the movie 
uh, we're under the impression that he and his partner, who are U.S. Marshals, have got, been sent to an insane asylum. Teddy and Chuck. Yeah, Teddy and Chuck. So Teddy and Chuck have been sent to Shutter Island, which is a has, has a health a mental health facility on it with wards A, B, and C. C being where the most uh, mm-hmm. difficult patients are kept. Yeah, and uh, he has been sent there because. Apparently, someone has escaped, mm. and they want to find out what happened. So he goes, and, and he's interrogating people. But there's always this sense of something being off. And we, mm-hmm. throughout the course of the movie, get the impression that there might be some kind of grand conspiracy around this facility to have human experiments. And then there's people who participate. Uh, Chuck, who is his recently assigned partner kind of says well what if all of this is a conspiracy like what if everything here is just to keep us here Mm -hmm. and kind of feeds that uh, paranoia that uh, our friend has our friend teddy and we're also left with these very graphic and somewhat horrifying flashbacks of teddy's through dreams or through just momentary flashbacks where there's blood and there's death were informed that his wife died in a fire mm-hmm. uh, that was apparently set by someone who was at this insane asylum, whose name is Andrew Lattice, and he, Teddy, who is actually Andrew, <laughs> uh, has has uh, con- big twist of the movie. Yeah, yeah, big twist of the movie. Has convinced himself that this this Andrew Lattice is at the insane asylum, and that's why he asked the U.S. Marshal's office to go right. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he actually wants to confront him confront or something. Him about burning the apartment complex down that his wife died in this fire. I think for first-time viewers, I'll say this um, right now. If you haven't seen Shutter Island, turn off this podcast because it's no fun to watch after you... Well, it is still fun to watch, but you don't <laughs> want to know. But also, pause it about... Four minutes ago before uh, you okay. spoiled Maybe we'll just start a, a disclaimer at the beginning. But uh, <laughs> anyway, long story short, there's everyone who's seen this knows that the, one of the best things about this movie is there's a massive twist, mm, yeah. uh, which is that it turns out that um, Andrew or Teddy have been at, on this island for years. Teddy is Andrew. And that he has convinced himself of a, a conspiracy story in his head mm-hmm. that he lives that he lives on repeat kind of resetting this the cassette tape uh, as they say in the movie and in that fantasy he's a u.s marshal which he was mm-hmm. but um after killing his wife right because she killed his children mm-hmm. by drowning them and then told him that he should just forget it <laughs> yeah and he hasn't wanted to have to live with the fact that the woman that he loved and adored mm. did this to his children, especially after it seems he confronted human evil to a great extent in World War II when he yeah. freed um, some people from concentration camp. And mm-hmm. he has stories about that too, but we'll, at which we'll get into. Uh, but he's been unable to live with reality, and therefore he has constructed this fiction upon which he's basing his entire life. But this fiction is causing problems at the insane asylum because <laughs> it makes him quite violent and he's very smart and he's military trained mm, right. uh, and a U.S. Marshal. So, so he's, he's a big he's, fucking nuisance he, yeah, He's got a there. lot of skills. <laughs> and it, it turns out that he actually has beat up fellow prisoners to the point of almost killing them yeah. at previous times. So essentially this... The theme of this movie is what if reality 
what if your mind is playing tricks on you the whole way down and you're not living in reality yeah and then there's that great reveal at the end where uh what's his name dr collie or cowley collie ben kingsley's character kind of informs teddy that all of this stuff about andrew and all of the unique and idiosyncratic ways that he's tricked himself into thinking he's teddy instead of andrew same with that that other girl rachel and yeah, his he's wife's name is rachel uh i can't remember her last no, his name. daughter's name is rachel sorry his wife oh, name was right. dolores yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's got all of these kind of like connections between the story he thinks he is real and the one that actually is real, which is kind of the path or the clues, I guess, that should be there the second time you watch it kind of thing. Which, which I really great. enjoy the secondary watching in yes. the sense that you see all of these things and you're like, oh, Yeah, man. well, that's actually a really awesome aside is this movie is also is very entertaining to watch a second time through yes. when you know the case as any good plot twist right yeah <laughs> you're like oh wow yeah especially they and, did this really well and especially because chuck his u.s marshal partner is actually his psychiatrist yes uh dr Sheehan or Sheehan. well they're walking through this um basically <laughs> their hope is that they can break this fiction that he's created and and make him live in reality and understand reality mm-hmm uh, and so they actually play out this gigantic role-playing game. Mm-hmm. And th- and that's why people are scripted. And that's why there seems to be a conspiracy. Because in a sense, there is a conspiracy. Well, but this conspiracy... Oh, yeah. Speaking of that, it just occurred to me, too. One major element of this that we would be remiss to not bring up is that it's set in 1954. And so this is an era, you know, the kind of immediate post-World War II era... And World War II being a time when obviously the Nazis did a lot of scientific, let's call them experiments, on human yeah. subjects that uh, wrought a lot of conspiracies themselves. <laughs> and yes. then part of why this movie really works narratively is that as the audience, you kind of buy into the fact that this institution could be experimenting on people with lobotomies or really... Because like, there's the whole kind of general atmosphere of patients being abused by the doctors so that we can perform experiments on them. This would have been something that was extra <laughs> happening in the 50s kind of yeah. thing. So the well, era and, sells it. And there's the whole red scare that's yeah. kind of developing at this point. And yeah. maybe, and so even there's a scene where he says, you know, a known communist, he uses that mm, yeah. to try to... I, I don't, so question. that setup is so good for us as the audience, the first watch through, to really believe that Teddy could be onto something here. So the first time you watched it, did the yeah. twist get you? Uh, so I have to admit, I actually knew the twist oh, before okay, I saw yeah. it. It was like one of those things that was ruined for me on YouTube or something. So I did know, or I read an article, because I didn't see it. I don't think I saw it for the first time at your house until like maybe 2015 right. or 2016. So it had already been out for a long time. So, you know. Just as it happens, you would yeah. have learned about the twist of that movie Absolutely. before it. Absolutely. But I but I, I do think that that kind of the era and the feel and the ominous something is off about all of this, that was good storytelling. Yes. In in the sense that it, it does prime the audience to think, even if not even if Teddy's not totally right about this, there does seem something weird going on here. Well you I remember like I think just even I, the walls, yeah. right? The aesthetic of the buildings, it makes it look like, oh, this is it feels evil almost here well and and to scorsese's credit like the camera angles like when you're coming around on the chair and there's just someone sitting there Mm -hmm. and there's like the 
the feeling of like the German fear. Yeah. The, the, right. I mean, Scorsese's the master of this, as, as most people would say, but he can build suspense like almost nobody. Mm-hmm. And he does it really well in this film. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should start with some of the World War II stuff. Because I think this is obviously like this is Teddy's past. So he's a soldier in World War II, and a lot of the flashbacks we get are of him being with the American GIs, I guess, while they're liberating Dachau, the uh, concentration camp in southern Germany. And actually, just as an aside, I've I've been to Dachau. Right. I have been to that concentration camp in 2004. My family took a trip to Europe that summer, and we visited the kind of museum, I guess, which is like. Not all the buildings are there, but some of them are still. And then, like, where the barracks were, there are plots. Yeah, I've only had this experience twice in my life, where I, at Dachau and at the Killing Fields in Cambodia. You can't not be somber. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, there's just, there's something about it. And, I mean, like, there's a couple signs around be like, this is a place where some really terrible things happen. Like, please be respectful in your presence. I mean, obviously it's like even being in a cemetery, it's not exactly the same because like you could go on a run in a cemetery, right. Or like walk your dog, but you just wouldn't do those things even here. Right. And so that's, that's neither here nor there. It's just like, it's, it was kind of interesting for me to have a place I've been be referenced in a movie like this. Well, I actually think that uh, that's a really good narrative setup too, right? Because it's this idea of, like, look at this evil. Mm. Like, look at what humans are capable of. Yeah. And and going over... I mean, he even says, we fought a war to stop that evil. Mm-hmm. Right? And there's this scene where he, he's convinced himself that the that they're experimenting on people. Mm-hmm. That, that basically Shutter Island is yeah. an equivalent to Dachau. And he right. says, we went... Oh, I'm going to expose this. We went overseas... I went overseas and fought a war to stop this. I'll be damned if I let it happen in my own country. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And That's a good point. I think that the fascinating aspect of this movie, and this is what, again, uh, I also recently just on my own accord watched Silence by Scorsese. Okay. Yeah. Which yeah, yeah. is. Um, is that Andrew Garfield in that one? Yes. Yes, yes it I is him. So. Okay. Yeah. But I have to say, that's a, that is a gut punch of a movie. Sure. Like, yeah. Both mentally, emotionally, everything. But that's what Scorsese's great at is he leaves things unanswered mm. and but asks you all the right questions. Yeah. Right. And I think the great question that he asks in this film, which we'll get to later, is were the atrocities of Nazi Germany right. any worse than the atrocities of the mental institutions? No, 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 of of ourselves. Oh, okay. Right? Be- or and, and was it mass insanity? What was it? Right? Like he's asking yeah, some significant yeah. questions because obviously I'm of the opinion that I don't think the Nazis were actually insane. In yeah, this, oh no. I, I don't want to give them that out, right? Mm, yeah. I think um I think they had been convinced that they they got taken down this path that people can get taken down into believing that there's a difference between us and them yeah right that yeah, yeah that there is a that i mean and you have to do this in order to i think you have to do this mentally in order to do the things that they did but you can't believe that jewish people are just equivalent in value to you like i can't even imagine how you would in a, 
enact anything like that if you believe that you'd have to right. you'd have to convince yourself that they weren't mm. yeah and so essentially nazi germany was a mass delusion in and of itself right <laughs> it's a hmm. mass insanity yeah. it was a societal level insanity and oh, dolores was an individual insanity but so because when he goes through his, his memories He's seeing these corpses, these piles of corpses, mm-hmm. and there's always this little girl, yeah, right, lying there. And turns and out it's actually his daughter. Turns out it's his daughter, right? And you're left with the question of what damage has this done? Mm. Whether it's mass insanity or personal. Insanity. Well, yeah, I mean that's a good connection of like mass insanity making individual insanity. And yet, <laughs> the, 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 the weird thing is the um, yeah, but the mass insanity of of the Nazi regime was rational, mm. right? In the sense that they they created reasons to believe it, and the people who believed it were not um, what we would call mentally, you know, they were not unmoored from reality, right? In the in the traditional idea of what you know insanity is, and yet. Their actions mm. were insane. Yeah, and well, they were rationalized. Yeah, that's that's maybe the better way of putting it. They were yeah. they weren't rational. They were rationalized, and that leaves you with a greater question. Well, that's similar to Teddy's journey. Yeah, well, that's right. what I mean. That's yeah, what's yeah, yeah. so fascinating is it's actually reflective of Teddy's journey. It's like look what the human yeah. mind is capable nice of. Nice connection there, right? I didn't look, even think what, of that. <laughs> look what the human mind is capable of because they were able to convince themselves of a completely not like. They were able to divorce the Nazi regime was able to divorce its mind from reality and then just say some humans are better than other humans and we're just going to kill these other humans. Well, and they, I mean, if we're going to, well, now I'm kind of retroactively applying the logic of Teddy's life to the Nazis. Yeah. But like they created this story for themselves that made their behavior rational. Yes. So it's almost like they needed a way to rationalize the behavior that they kind of wanted to do. And because f- maybe for one reason or another, I mean, who who knows for sure at the final analysis, but for some reason, hating on the Jews, hating on gay people, hating on intellectuals, hating on anyone who doesn't fit the Aryan stereotype, that was in some way kind of cathartic for that regime that made well, I think it they needed to be something. Goat, yeah, they needed right? the scapegoats so that they could maybe justify their loss at some form or another, right? And, and in... <laughs> I didn't think we'd be comparing the Nazis to Teddy's life, but I guess it works is that Teddy experiences that loss in the term, in the fact that he, all three of his children are murdered by his his wife, wife. right? Like what's a deeper cut to a person's life than something like all three of your children being murdered by the person who is co along with you supposed to be the most nurturing and caring. Like, obviously it would be devastating to have your, children murdered anytime but to have it be by your spouse because they themselves are sick in some form or another like i just like that's a that's a whole depth of tragedy and i mean maybe this is being well it's obviously being much too kind to the nazis but to say like if they feel something like the loss of their country and the loss of their kind of vitality after world war one and the economic downturn and then this like Obviously, not everyone in Germany. I mean, that's what's really terrifying is that a small, that a minority of people with initiative can do a lot of damage, yeah. <laughs> especially if they get power and power of the state. That kind of, pers- whether real or perceived injustice or 
quote unquote tragedy of their experience helps them justify whatever crazy story they make up about the way the world is because that's how they can live with it maybe well right? yeah i think i think that that's the most fascinating part of this movie and going mm. further on that point when you think about what's happening right now yeah with covid a lot of people are going to want someone to blame <laughs> I have to say, just an interjection, one of my favorite Hitchensisms is the search the search for blame is just part of the search for meaning. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. And I agree. And and they're gonna want someone to blame for what comes next, which isn't even the virus as necessarily the enemy, but the economic upheaval we're gonna face. Like we're we're seeing numbers that we've never seen before. Right? This is worse than the Great Depression in terms right, yeah. of of what we're what we're hearing and maybe the bounce back will be quick but it isn't looking that way mm-hmm. right so i mean i want you to imagine for a moment people going to you know concerts and like sweating all over each other as they dance in a mosh pit it's just yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not likely to happen mm-hmm. right psychologically we not have, right away we have been deeply impacted by this psychologically i mean you and i went shopping the other day and you could just feel the psychological impact among everyone yeah everyone you saw everywhere you walked There is a weird kind of like, because of this social distancing, there's the kind of first order, you back away from people when you see them, because we know that that's what we're supposed to do. And you almost kind of like blame them a bit for being too close to you, (laughs) right? Well, But then there's that second order like longing for human connection that is kind of lost now so even though you back away from someone i do this when i'm running i back away or i run kind of off the sidewalk but then i look at them like i give a smile and a nod like i i want to be close to you but i can't but i can't yeah. you know <laughs> so i was weird well and uh and i was talking to one of my colleagues and he has a six-year-old son and he said well, what am i doing to my son's psyche like i tell mm. him that he when we're walking on a bridge you know, across on the sidewalk, I tell him he can't touch the handrail now, mm-hmm. right? And when we're and when we're walking, I say stay away from people, mm-hmm. right? And it's like don't touch anything. Mm-hmm. Like when you're six, that's going to have a long term impact when that's how you relate to people. Good news for your friend. I was just listening to a podcast between Sam Harris and Paul Bloom, and Paul Bloom is a psychologist from Yale who actually also specializes specializes in child psychology. And he has good news that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that this kind of thing doesn't have as bad long-term effects on kids as thing like cruelty and negligence do and bad parenting, but like a kind of social thing like this. Hopefully kids can actually be kind of resilient to this kind of thing in the long term. Oh, that is good. So that is good news. Just as some positive PSA is that kids actually psychologically are probably almost doing better with this than adults are. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I've noticed that with my nephews and my nieces, they seem to be understanding. Like they get, mm-hmm. they it's just they're like, oh, we can't go outside because of the virus. Yeah, and it's just like, well, that's just a a new fact of life sure, that yeah, we're yeah, dealing yeah. with. Yeah. So anyway, going back, so that's the danger, right? Right. Yeah. I think the danger that we have to like, m- maybe even Dolores to some extent, she was, she said she wanted to be free, mm, right? Yeah. And the only way that she could be free for su- for some reason, mm-hmm. she seemed to think was killing her children. Yeah. And then treating them like dolls. Like, mm-hmm. it's just a creepy moment. Yeah. But once you've convinced yourself that there's something in your life or someone in your life or mm-hmm. some group of people in your life 
And that's the cool layering that we see in this movie Mm -hmm. uh, that is to blame for your current condition. Right. Uh, You're going to tell yourself a story Mm -hmm. and that about them. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. The the stories you tell yourself to give yourself reasons. Now I I do want to just kind of, I realized in the last several minutes that perhaps I was a little bit too sympathetic to the Nazis. Yes. And I want to make it clear that that's not my point because the difference is Teddy's delusion, insanity and rationalization is tragic because he's an individual person that had a horrible thing happen to him by a direct other person. And it can be like the, the genesis of these things can be traced so clearly. And he, in one, in in a, in a non-trivial sense, he's a victim and he's using that rationalization. Well, not to mention his PTSD from the war, which we'll talk about in a second. So that what's different then is Teddy is a character in a sense of sympathy and we can understand his rationalizations. Whereas with the Nazis, the point is that you can understand the rationalizations at an intellectual level. Well, and they but and they, the Nazis themselves took advantage of the pain and suffering. That's right. why I brought up COVID right. and someone to blame is they took advantage of the bad economic times of mm-hmm. the of the let's call it the despair right. of the German people, uh-huh. and they said, "Hey, it's not your fault." Yeah, right? and that's why I think it's much more clear to point out blame in individual people. Yes. So it's not just the Nazis; it's Hitler. And Himmler and Goring and Goebbels, right? Like the heads of all these people who decide, Eichmann even, you know, who even though he said, I was just following orders, well, (laughs) you still chose to follow those orders, right? And so I'm just trying to, this is a tricky needle to thread. I'm trying to make the point that we can find parallels between someone like Teddy's rationalizations as an individual insanity and the Nazis' rationalizations as collective insanity, but yet still our ethical framework will cash out at the level of the individual. Yeah, we'll condemn the... Yeah. Well, that's why I say it's interesting that one seems to be done rationally Mm -hmm. and the other we... we, On an individual level, we we designate that as insanity. Yeah. But on a corporate level, the same insane actions, let's say, the telling yourself a story, Mm -hmm. we suddenly are like, well, we understand the difference. Yeah. Right? Because one is a broader story, a bigger story, right? That, <laughs> well, you know. that has larger impacts than an individual. An individual we can deal with as society, but when all of society starts going insane, yeah. like what, what is that? Uh, there's some quote about like it's... Nietzsche. I was yeah, just thinking yeah, of what it. Is he, uh, he says, um, absurdity, insanity, and madness in individuals is quite rare, but in groups, societies, and organizations, it is the norm. Well, and that's kind of, <laughs> yeah, the point that I wanted to get at okay, is yeah. when we look at... It seems so mind-boggling to us to look at the insanity that mm-hmm. consumes Teddy slash Andrew's life. Right. But then if you actually look at some of the things we believe mm-hmm. or that societies have believed, whether that be slavery right. or the Nazis or, or so many of the evils that have been perpetrated mm-hmm. on each other, that we've perpetrated on each other, they're they're insane. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a, a crazy tale you know, told to our, ourselves. Well, and I think it's part of that is because there's a there's a quirk of our psychology where, let's say you have a hundred people and only like seven of them really think something, like they really 
or like not let's say 93 think one thing seven people think a different thing but those seven people are really loud and maybe one of them has a some stature social stature what happens is that those 93 people out of the 100 who don't believe that thing they st- they don't believe it anymore after the loudmouths tell them that it's the truth but what they do think is that other people around them think that more yeah right oh it's and a so huge that's problem. The, i think that's what contributes to the collective insanity that you're talking about is that it's not so much that the populace it's not so much the people in Germany were Nazis. It's just that they probably thought more people around them were Nazis than they actually were because the Nazis had a lot of pomp and ceremony. They had yeah. a lot of like, well, obviously they had all the propaganda, right? So it's like, I, I can't remember the correct term in psychology. It's like common knowledge versus individual knowledge or something like that. It's not enough for me to dislike the dictator. I need to know that you also dislike the dictator, which is why free expression, the press, journalists are always the people authoritarians go after first. And why the parable or the fable of the emperor has no clothes is so meaningful. Yes. Well, and this- <laughs> so we need to know, I'm not only am I not crazy, but I also know you're not crazy too. Yeah. Well, and this goes back to um, a courage. It's on an individual level. It's the courage to express what you believe is right, mm-hmm. regardless of what you think others. And that does take courage, not just intellectually, but biologically. Right. Because biologically, not fitting in with the tribe is a dangerous path to take, right? Mm-hmm. But the, <laughs> I guess the joke, the cosmic joke here is that you actually are fitting in on the with the tribe by not being going along. Right. With I mean, that is right. <laughs> like, like the, well, that's what I mean. It's like that? it's a connection. It's it's a it's not understanding reality because you're living within this parrot this story, mm-hmm. which says, well, everyone thinks that anyway. Well, I yeah. don't want to piss people off. Well, at the end of the day, you might find out that you have a lot more. <laughs> I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. found that out. There was right. a lot more people who who believe what he was saying. Definitely, it was just that there was loudmouths who were yeah. perpetrating these these Jim Crow laws. Well, and at a completely less meaningful or like ethically meaningful level, this is what professors mean when they say, make sure you ask a question because chances are half the class has the same question as you. Yeah, <laughs> right? exactly. Like it's the it's the developing common knowledge, which, okay, so this was a good, that's what was not able to happen in Nazi Germany is that the vast majority of Germans who didn't, or or not vast, I don't know, the majority of Germans who who like weren't Nazis didn't want to do this stuff to the Jews did well or they wouldn't even know it was really happening a lot of them while it was happening well and they and, would have they just didn't have a way of kind of coordinating with each other well a and then b the, i mean hitler understood that so he educated the children mm-hmm, right he says yeah. you know give me the children get them when they're young uh, let me educate the children and i'll control the society well, what good ideology doesn't go for the young right <laughs> and and there's a lot of things that he did to to stamp out resistance Mm -hmm. right it wasn't as if everyone was just cowardly but i think it goes back to that old truism like all it takes for evil to prosper is good men to do nothing yeah yeah yeah, and i think uh i think cowardice is very often the like watching you know it's that old the nazis came for the jew or for Mm -hmm. the jews and i did nothing the nazis came for the gay people i did nothing and then when they came for me no one was left to stand up for me yeah 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 well, and I guess I guess that's ultimately what was psychologically different in like all of these ideologies where societies go crazy as opposed to an individual. Like obviously you can make a metaphor about the different workings of Teddy's brain being the different elements of a society that are yes. <laughs> off with each other, but you know, we don't hold 
and maybe this is an interesting future thing. We don't really hold one part of the brain ethically responsible and one part of the brain non-ethically responsible. So we we always, we extrapolate to the level of one person for choices and all that kind of stuff. And Teddy himself exposes a real problem of... uh, like what is a society supposed to do with with a well, person yes, who thing who can't? Right? It's not like I think Teddy's a bad person, but he's very violent and he can harm. So, so, so like, there's one part of my intuition that says, okay, I see Teddy kind of like I might see like a lion or a grizzly bear, right? right? Yeah, who is dangerous, but I don't hold morally culpable. But then there's another part of me that says, but he's a person. Yeah. Like, so how do I? So we, we should just, be holding him. Well, I mean, and that's it's a, a kind of a failure of intuition when it comes to someone like him. Right. So I don't, like, I don't know. What's your intuition about someone who is violent and a danger, but maybe we don't hold responsible? Well, this is actually an important political point, too. Right. Because mm-hmm. one of the, you know, let's call it memes that has become an idea in and of itself, particularly in conservative politics, is that the left just wants to let violent criminals, <laughs> like it just wants to let them out of sure, prison, yeah. right? And That's that, the low-hanging fruit version of oh, it. Oh, <laughs> very much so. Like, I mean, and well, let's take a Canadian example. There was a horrific crime that occurred on a on a Greyhound bus where, oh, right. where a, a beheading, mentally, right? Yeah, uh, where a, schi- a schizophrenic cut a guy's head off with a butcher knife yeah. on a on a greyhound bus and that's horrible yeah. and then um you know it's been i guess about 10 or years so or so since then or maybe a little bit longer mm-hmm. and this guy gets released yeah because he was not held crim- criminally re- well, not released he's still under the watchful eye of the state sure but he's no longer you know in prison and there's an uproar there's a sense of injustice that we're allowing these people who mm. didn't give, let's say, that person a choice, right? The the person who was murdered, you know, doesn't get to go free now or, yeah. or come back to life or any of these things. But as a society, we've right now, and we'll see if that changes, we've said, well, you can't be criminally responsible for something you do if you're insane. Yeah, and that is a much bigger topic than we're ever going to solve on this podcast but i do i do feel the kind of like obviously if you were a family member of that victim on the bus you would have (laughs) basically no time or patience for this kind of thing but this is why i think it is useful to like this is why we need to learn more about this kind of stuff because what if that guy who did the beheading on the bus what if he like what (laughs) In a sense, maybe we do have to view him more like a predator, and I don't mean that in the like human sense, like an animal sense, right? Like a like a grizzly bear. He's like a hungry grizzly bear. Well, that's really dangerous, or or a mama grizzly bear, separate. <laughs> like that's dangerous. But like, can you hold a, a grizzly bear accountable for its actions for what we care about? And I don't think you can. Like, it doesn't make any sense to. Like, here's what or. Maybe you can, but I'll try and tap your intuition the other way by saying, what about the stories? I think it was in India, but maybe it was somewhere in Africa where I can't remember exactly the time period. It might have been when Europeans were first starting to get to these places, but maybe not. But it was, a, you know, an elephant would stampede through and like trample three or four people. And then the elephant would have a trial. They would convict it guilty and then they would execute the elephant. Right. <laughs> right. Like, what? Yeah, I know. <laughs> right. Like okay, maybe executing the elephant isn't crazy, 
But why, like, what are you, (laughs) our entire sense of justice is based on kind of something like a rational faculty in a person to understand their crime, have remorse. How likely are they not for... Uh, to be recidivists in their system, right? Like, I know. I mean, co- like the common law yeah, tradition just, well, has developed more, more ba- like an, a basic understanding of the language you're talking. Yeah, right? yeah you can't really put an elephant on trial. So that's why, like, even though we're talking about serious things, it's a little bit of a funny example of okay, but is that guy in the Greyhound bus or Teddy? Are they more like? The guy at Nor- in Norway who's an ideologue who murdered all those kids and fully well, I think admitted to it. That's the question is I it find more like most him, interesting. Yeah, or is it more like the elephant stampeding through? Well, that's the question there. I find most they interesting, right? Because both both are insane. Yes, yeah. They both have lost their connection to reality, but yeah. one has done so through convincing themselves of an ideology and and mm-hmm. see and appears rational right where the other their disconnection with reality is so stark that we say well they're not criminally responsible oh yeah man that's a tough okay this right that, this that's is a big kind question. of I think the crux so my first blush thought on this is i'm going to say the teddies and the greyhound example that you gave are more in the realm of they have in some way well it's a little harder with teddy because it's almost like he blue pilled himself yeah <laughs> a little yeah. bit but also he had ptsd from the war which he didn't do to himself so those kind of people they're less amenable to our general justice system because they can't tether their behavior to any sort of real world rationalizations that the community around them can kind of comprehend and i guess the murderer in norway even though we condemn it we, we can understand that he still is someone who knows that they're acting in the world as their own self, as their own agent, poisoned by an ideology, but not, in a sense, unsure of who they even are. Yeah, so I, right? if I think about it, this is kind of how I think about it, and I'd like to know your thoughts on it. But Teddy himself, in his moment of kind of lucidity, mm. after everything's been explained to him, and he's right. saying, I am Andrew... He says, they're like, well, why did you tell yourself these stories? And he's like, because I couldn't live in a world where my wife <laughs> murdered my kids and then that I killed her. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, that was too traumatic. And part of it, like you said, was maybe the PTSD of, of watching the evil of what the Nazis did and then seeing the person that he loved so dearly and obviously loves very dearly. I, I don't want to derail you, but I do want to point out, I think the PTSD for his case specifically, is a massive point of relevance yes. in this story because I don't know where the literature cl- or clinical work would have been in 1954 on or whenever he was admitted, I guess, 52, on PTSD, right? Maybe there was so- starting to be some clinical work on it, but it definitely wasn't in the public consciousness in any sort of sympathetic way. I mean, it's, it's only starting to get there now, Yeah, right? So there would have been... Like that element of it, I think, would have been massively impactful to him in a sense that he probably, maybe without the PTSD, he could have handled what happened. Right. I mean, handling that. Handled it without having to be institutionalized. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe without murdering his, who knows, mm-hmm. well, without killing But anyway, his sorry. But my point is um, that he has, based on something that happened to him, created a fantasy 
to deal with it. Now, a <laughs> lot of these people who commit these mass crimes mm-hmm. are also telling themselves a fantasy. Mm-hmm. Right. Are, and I guess the question is, is it to deal with something? And I think it is. And here's what I think it is to deal with. I think a lot of these people are actually consumed by their own selves so much. Like they've they've become so broken and they've got themselves into these loops where they believe these mm. that the world is unjust to them. Right. And they they latch on to an evil ideology because it gives them someone to blame yeah right Mm -hmm. like the guy in norway was a racist murderer yeah and he was a racist murderer who who killed a bunch of kids Mm -hmm. because he believed that somehow and, and he convinced himself that society was to blame for his problems not him sure yeah yeah uh, and I think right? you're right. Like and maybe I, I think that's the distinction yeah. between him and because I'm just trying to work out the distinction in my own mind. Mm-hmm. I think that's the distinction between him and Teddy. Teddy wasn't blaming the world for his problems. No, he couldn't handle the world. Right, and so he made up a, a fantasy mm-hmm. that made him not have to deal with the mm-hmm. reality. Well, yeah, the 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 pain. I think it was probably making a different emotion happen in him than would have been happening in that Breivik guy. Yeah. The emotion in Teddy is something more like just kind of crushing psychological torture. Yes. Based on the existential thing that happened to him. And the emotion in someone like Breivik is probably more along the lines of resentment. Yes. Right? Yes. And so, I and I, I mean... We might be just splitting a hair here, but you know, far be it from us to not do such a thing. Yes. Um, my totally non-expert hat wearing here is that I feel like something like the Justice Department or the judicial system has to kind of draw a line somewhere between what they count. And the big difference seems to me is that someone who's criminally insane, let's say, so Teddy or the Greyhound example, my guess would be those people cannot give a kind of they can't give an intelligible self-reflection of their own identity coherent over time right where someone like Breivik could so his delusion is kind of like paranoia about like it's more like that kind of paranoia that Teddy is starting to experience as a defense mechanism right right? right. where it's like oh they're out here to test on me it's the communists it's uh, whatever other thing is being fed into him that's kind of more like what I guess would happen to to a terrorist like Brevik, but Brevik could, I assume, could still give a coherent narrative of his own identity over time. Well, and maybe that's a different. Let's go to Islamic terrorist for a second. Yeah. Right? I mean, they don't strike us as insane. No. Right. No. They they truly believe something that we might look at and say, "Well, this is a." disconnect from reality Mm -hmm. like this is not true yeah but they really believe it and i guess that's the maybe the scary part that i want to get into later is we make the distinction for the teddies yeah right but are we and i'm not in any way (laughs) justifying the behavior of of anyone who like i don't this is why i wonder about the insanity plea Mm. right this is why it bothers me a little bit on a personal level because i'm like well how is their disconnect from reality and i like what you said there's a continuity 
yeah. right? A, a continuity of personal understanding. Where you so, more or less believe that that person knows who they are over time. Yeah, and I would love, I bet you that psychologists and psychiatrists actually have some kind of delineation on sure, this yeah. front, right? It seems uh, to be their job. Yeah, which would be, <laughs> I would be interested in any of them maybe weighing in if there's sure, any yeah. listening. But just in my, you know, yeoman's <laughs> reflection on yeah, it, yeah, yeah. it's a little bit interesting to me, the similarities. Mm. And it's like, well... And then, and the reason I want to get into that actually has nothing to do with terrorism yeah. or mental health. It's like, what are the things that you are believing, and you as a corporate, you not necessarily you as Luke, right? That are completely false, and yet you believe them with all your heart. Well, what if there were hundreds of thousands of Teddies who managed to make a coherent narrative and yes. then have global presence? Yeah, we might feel them differently. We right? might. We <laughs> might. We might. Yeah. Have you ever seen the movie Primal Fear? Richard no. Gere and one of Edward Norton's first ever movies. No, I haven't. Well, I'm going to spoil that one for everyone. But basically, it's kind of tapping into this thing where Richard Gere is a lawyer and he is representing Edward Norton's character who committed a terrible crime. And part of what's going on in, a, in the movie is that it turns out that this guy is a schizophrenic and he's got split personalities basically and one of them is evil who does the crime and the other one is kind of innocent and play and like a nice person and he's terrified so it's like you can imagine like a Gollum Smeagol yes. kind of bifurcation of the mind and I mean the great twist of that movie is that he's actually one person he's actually the only the evil person he pretends to be the good person to play the system <laughs> yeah so Oof. it's kind of that crazy sounds good yeah so yeah I don't know I mean again just to draw the line at maybe jurisprudence, criminally insane is someone who can't pr- who can't provide a coherent continuity of self over time that other people around them can kind of acknowledge or vouch and for corroborate, and yeah. corroborate, right? Whereas I imagine most terrorists' self-narrative wouldn't be wildly non-intelligible to the people around them in their lives yeah <laughs> in a way that yeah. teddies would be <laughs> to Where it's like anyone else you were a mark you have a different name now yeah yeah, yeah 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 so i think yeah you're right there would <laughs> we are both not experts on this that would i'd love to talk to a psychologist about in terms of all of that but yeah like hmm, that was really interesting your comparison to the collective insanity of the nazis and his own because there's some interesting parallels well there. and one we write off yeah. And the other we completely condemn. Yeah. And I think I think we're kind of circling around an answer to that, but mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure we've quite reached one. And maybe well, we I, can. I, I, I don't think, because we can't, I don't think our intuitions can allow us to say, Teddy knows what he's doing. No. Where our intuitions can allow us to say, Hitler knew what he was doing. And, you know, Goebbels knew what he was doing. Now, how do those words cash out? I mean, honestly, our intuitions are at the level of norms. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, and norm, again, and what's normal <laughs> in your society may not yeah. could be condemned by yeah, a future yeah, yeah. society, rightly or wrongly. Yeah. Right? I think that's what I find most fascinating is it's not so much the belief. I mean, it's not so much the belief in the thing that's not real that causes us to delineate between those two things because mm. lots of people believe in things that aren't real including, I would argue, both of us. That, yeah. <laughs> um, that seems to be a human problem. And I guess what I would say is the only way 
to build a defense against that, I think, is to have a, a great degree of humility mm. towards all of your beliefs. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. high conviction. It seems to me that Teddy was a very high conviction person. And oh, was yeah. therefore able to convince himself yeah. of, a, of a completely false reality. Yeah. But that's because he, at the end of the day, I think became the arbiter of truth for himself. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is why I try to operate under a more how than what mentality. So it's how you think is more important than what you think. Yes. Yeah. Because <laughs> the that process-based version of trying to, I mean, in philosophical terms, I care more about epistemology than ontology, right? I care more about how we know something than what we know yeah yeah <laughs> just because i don't think there's ever an actual end to the what no there's just, just adding more <laughs> well yeah it's a finite being in a, in a ostensibly infinite universe yeah you exactly. just couldn't fit all knowledge into your head so once you kind of have that epiphany i guess you you want to work a lot more on refining your methods and techniques more than landing on a platform yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? And, I go, and Teddy back, can't do that. No. Right? Like, what? Everything that happens to Teddy in this movie is siphoned or filtered into a pre-existing way of how he's wanting the world out, to be. Like, he's, he's basically, it's kind of like Memento. There's that great scene at the end of Memento where Leonard kind of understands his own limitations and sets himself up to be going down a path that later he won't recognize, but knows that will lead him to something that will make him feel better, even if it's not his original plan or what he thinks is, I mean, again, it's hard to say with him. Teddy has kind of pre-programmed his brain, for lack of a better term, to be kind of like bumpers down a course, always pushing him to a predetermined outcome, which is him believing this institution is evil well and he's got con and and the only reason he needs to believe that this institution and that this andrew lattice guy killed his wife yeah not himself exactly is because he needs to separate himself from reality because reality is too painful yeah and he set it up that way it's not even just that he wants that he's somehow figured out a maze i mean again this is kind of a cool way with the brain works it reminds me of westworld like the maze to consciousness he has set up a kind of program in his mind to make that outcome inevitable. And that's actually the great puzzle that Kali and Shayan are trying to solve. Like their whole plan or their whole MO or prerogative with him is to put him in such an intricate role-playing scenario that something will come out that something like Teddy's brain hasn't planned for to help him get a jolt of reality because maybe there will be a data point or a piece of information that comes out that he hasn't prophylacted himself against already somehow. Yeah, that's what they're trying right? to do, right? Is And it's interesting because this is a huge exercise in confirmation bias, <laughs> right? It feels like, it's like saying the Pacific Ocean is a huge exercise in water. Yeah. So what would, yeah, what would be an example in your life of, of a confirmation bias that you had to deal with? Well, I think actually I'm, I probably brought it up before, but it was um, like Christian science, right. creationism. I, I Let's honestly go with a more recent one since you. Yeah, but well, that one had the most valence, right? Um, more recent. Well, 
maybe this is appropriate is that I guess I, I just kind of naively thought other people changed their minds based on evidence. <laughs> and, right. and I don't think that's the case. I think, I think people change their minds on evidence when the evidence is presented by someone they like or trust. Right. It's so, not just raw evidence. The data, <laughs> no, yeah. I think the raw evidence or data can be persuasive to people, but only if they already kind of aren't, if they're in the right psychological state of mind, yeah. which, which involves a lot of other things kind so of So where would be being, evidence that you would look at where you're like, oh, I, everyone makes decisions based on evidence that you're suddenly like... And you would throw things into that confirmation bias. Well, I think a lot of it was just because of my own mental predilections. I was more attracted to the empirical mindset. And so I just kind of sought out those sources of information my whole life. So, you know, science books, scientists. When YouTube came out, I was interested in kind of science lecturers. So I kind of just developed this pre-programmed, again, assumption that that's how the world operated, is that everyone kind of thought like the hour of the scientist talking. Right, right. <laughs> Which isn't the case, no, you no, know? No, no, Not even the scientists can no, manage to no, do that. They, uh, no. The scientist themselves almost needs that social corrective of, well, here's the expectation of people who listen to scientists. Right, right. Right. And so, again, how recent, like probably I started knowing that over a decade ago, but that's more recent than yeah, the other time. That's true. So it's a tough question. Like, what's my confirmation biases now? Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, that's, I think, I don't know. A question that I try to ask myself mm. a lot. Yeah. Particularly because it's very easy in politics to become an ideologue it's very easy to you know it's tribal there's you know jersey wearing there's you know my team is always right mm -hmm. and then you can get so far down that rabbit hole that suddenly your team could do something that violates your ideology but because it's your team right yeah you're suddenly like oh no whatever <laughs> like that we do, when we do it it's fine right yeah 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 when you do it it's evil when i do it it's politics yeah well exactly <laughs> and that that i think that's what a lot of high minded individuals hate about politics is they see it as an exercise in in dumbing down conversations and, mm -hmm. and stupefying facts and maybe to some degree it can be that but i think i think that as any individual who wants to be self aware has to realize is that one of the most common human psychological fallacies is confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. And you will be drawn to things that solidify your worldview sure. in a way that you will definitely not be drawn to anything else. But I think the major difference between someone like you and me and someone like Teddy, fortunately, I think there is one, <laughs> <laughs> Yes, hopefully. is that you and I are cognitively capable of that second or higher order reflection on our biases yeah and that's something he can't do because he's so insulated himself because to not be insulated yeah. would be to feel pain. well the essentially i mean this is oversimplifying it um in terms of the mental health literature i'm sure but essentially that scene in the lighthouse at the end where Kali and then shayan slash mark ruffalo slash chuck shows up that moment is them trying to have the breakthrough of Teddy being able to do that higher order mental function, which is understand that he tricked himself. Yeah. Right? So there's a huge difference 
between this is what I call like the difference between seeing an optical illusion and knowing you're seeing an optical illusion versus just assuming it's the way the things are, right? So what you and I can hopefully do is at least solve the problem that Plato talked about in the cave is that we can know we're looking at shadows. We are looking at shadows, even if we're looking at shadows and that's what we see. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> right. Right. And maybe, and Teddy can't know he's looking at shadows and the tragedy is he's done that to himself. Yeah. But then the broader tragedy is that it happened to him. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it is like tragedy all the way down. I like in this, that. In this movie, right? Yeah. So there's another kind of motif of this movie that I wanted to bring up and it's mentioned a few times, but I think it's most encapsulated in a line Teddy says, crazy people talk and no one listens. And the reason for this, given in the movie, is that if someone's crazy, it doesn't matter how reasonable something they say is, it can be discounted as, well, they're crazy. So we don't right. have to listen, right? Now. I think it's the doctor in the cave that says that. She does, but yeah. he says it earlier too. Oh, right, right. There's a scene kind of within the first 20 minutes where that comes up and then it's again, but then since we learned that that doctor in the cave is actually just his own projections. Yes. It's him, funny, again, doing that. So, But it made me think that, like, this is a kind of hand-wavy, easy way to discount anything you don't like or agree with. So, obviously, I'm not trumpeting a brand new thought of you label something bad to take it seriously, right? <laughs> or, or to have to not take it seriously. Once you throw a label on something, it, it's corrosive, let's say, or toxic, as they... And there's a couple intuitions here that I... It made me... It, it, I was grateful for the film for helping me realize some of these intuitions I have about this. So one of the contemporary words that just rubs me the wrong way always is, what's your brand? Oh. What's your branding? And I just couldn't quite put my finger on it. It's like, why don't I like that as a term or as a concept? And I think it's because I feel like a similar thing is like, and I've talked about it in other forms, a word too vague is too easy because mm. it can mean whatever you need it to for whatever other purposes. You can't pin it down. So if someone says, oh, that's not our brand, they don't have to tell you why. No. <laughs> right? They don't have to get any more detailed. So it's like it's at a level of analysis too high up for like an investigative mind to be satisfied with the answer. Because to me, I think how you brand yourself to the world out there is like, well, how do we, I almost hear something like, well, how do we trick people into liking us if they wouldn't, if they knew us better? <laughs> you know? And, right. And there's some, well, there's an element of that that's very cynical about other people's capacities who will ingest our content, not our really true fiction, just anyone's yeah. content. And that rubs me the wrong way. But then also just kind of like once you label a source, one form or another, you don't have to take it seriously. So I'm also reminded of, um, have you ever heard of this guy named, I think it's James O'Keefe or James Keefe, yep. James O'Keefe, right? The Project Veritas guy. He's been on Eric Weinstein's podcast and, you know, all the mainstream media now has to do is just say, oh, this came from Project Veritas, so you don't have to believe it. Well, so even if he comes up with something really revolutionary or interesting or something worth public the public knowing about his, you know, quote unquote status or stature makes him toxic let's say i don't even like using that that's another reason i don't like the word toxic right it's just whatever you don't like you call it that you don't have to differentiate why you don't like it it's not detailed enough it's not precise it's almost, or accurate it's become kind of a, a yeah. dogmatic word mm -hmm. to to you know yeah to discount heritage so i'm realizing i'm actually bringing up two different points here one of them is that i don't like words that are too vague used carelessly 
because you aren't thinking well then, or you're not thinking as good as you could be. But I also don't like labels because they let you dismiss something which could be a good source. Right. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on any of that realm of things. I guess it sparked my interest, that phrase, too. It's like, because that kind of puts you in a catch-22, right? If you're insane, then anything you can you can you even trust your own mind well yeah can we trust anything that guy on the greyhound bus says now right like (laughs) even if he's right about something it doesn't matter right is is because we we have labeled like you said we've labeled them this is a big thing that we don't talk about a lot of society but it's reputation Mm -hmm. they they used to talk about it all the time sure Right, is your reputation yeah. is the most important thing you have. You know, your I mean, even in in uh, David Brooks's The Road to Character, he talks about mm-hmm. how reputation used to be something that we valued. Sure, n- and yeah. now you know it's not nearly as much, but it still has the same impact. Mm-hmm. Right, I mean, a good example in our country is Ezra Levant. Right, he was like he was a real taken seriously at the beginning of his career, and and through a ser- long series of choices, he became someone that you know is kind of laughed out of the room even even if he breaks stories mm-hmm. like that it should be broken right no one will take him seriously now who's to blame for that should we be like how and this is a, a human problem right especially in the age of information mm-hmm. we have so much information to available available to us how do we determine the validity of a source well we have to we have to make judgments on sources mm-hmm. and this is maybe a big problem in america too is that there's two very powerful sources, the right and the left, and they are constantly working on discrediting the validity of the of one source to to their base mm-hmm. to the point where there are two. I mean, in the words of uh, Scott Adams, there's two movies going on. Yeah, yeah, it's a great right? metaphor, hey. And um, I think this human tendency to triage data based on reputation is is i don't know how we're going to get overcome that yeah right like i'm not going to put more validity in you know reddit reddit the conspiracy sub as i am Mm. say like um a scientific journal Mm -hmm. but there has been i mean eric weinstein brings up the fact that there's you know there's cover-ups in science too yeah well he calls it um the gated institutional narrative yeah right so i mean Narratives are everywhere. What narrative you believe? I mean, I'm a big believer in the stories that you tell yourself or how you live your life. Yeah, and I mean, I I think this is one of the issues or kind of social phenomenon that have uh, created the conditions possible for the rise of the popularity of the podcast or the YouTube video, the long form, because it allows people to actually flesh out their ideas. Yeah. And it turns out with the popularity of podcasts, this is something there's an audience for and people really care about. <laughs> yeah. You know, like people want to think deeper and they yeah. want to actually become self aware. And they, like, I, I see that with so many of my friends who are into podcasts, particularly, I guess, the big, mm-hmm. let's call them the big five. You know, right. you got Joe Rogan, mm-hmm. Eric Weinstein now has really developed Sam Harris mm-hmm. within my group of, of, my sphere of influence, Jordan Peterson, has played a very sure, big yeah. role. Yeah. Uh, and there's that 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 group of, I mean, they call themselves the intellectual dark web, I guess, you know, Dave Rubin, who want to look at reality and and 
be less wrong. Right. I've talked to you about this before. I think what I really don't like about the labeling effect, I mean, I know that that's probably not exactly the right term psychologically, but it's that breaking down of a square into quadrants yes. and then into 16ths and then into 64ths. Like you can always be more precise. And so you could use a label that might encapsulate what you're talking about, but it's not precise enough to be as, as scrupulous as a inquiring and thinking mind would want you to be as a source, let's yeah. say, right? And now part of that is that there's a bandwidth of attention problem in the world. And so you got to catch eyeballs as it were if there's, but then that's also because there's bad incentives in the market maybe for that kind of stuff. But I'm just, um, I guess I'm trying to like give a warning about personally, I don't trust my reflexive attitude is to not trust label-esque words when people use them, especially in public for something. Right. It's like, okay, there's something more detailed about this thing that you are not interested in telling me about. Mm-hmm. Why? Mm-hmm. Yeah, why? <laughs> right? And I'm saying, I think that there's lots of and growing numbers of people who have that same reaction. And so how that relates to Teddy, I'm not exactly sure. Right. <laughs> but it's what it made me think of. I think it relates to Teddy in the sense that... um that's a weird thing for him to say, actually, in the movie, because it does make it seem like he is capable of some of that higher order reflection. Although I guess it's never him who says it, then, because he doesn't. I don't know think he does say it. No. No, but who? Okay, well, so the lady in the it happens twice for sure in the movie. The lady in the cave, and then early in the movie, someone says it too. Maybe it's one of the people they're interviewing. Yeah, I can't remember. But anyway, I thought that was an interesting point. It's like, hmm, yeah, and, and so if you've already labeled someone. So now if someone like Ezra Levant says something really true and really important, there's a whole swath of people that don't have to take that on as another piece of data in their thinking because he's evil. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right? Well, that's the big problem. That's, I like what, I mean, that's the problem with labeling that I have Mm -hmm. is, but also I like, I just understand the bandwidth problem, right? Mm -hmm. Like we can't take, you have to, winnow you know you have to separate the the wheat from the chaff and like you know even a broken clock is right twice a day sure but i think maybe maybe the solution then is something like social trust in building up credibility in people over time who could be kind of these like watchtower guides well one of my one of the things my dad is very interested in that i've just kind of he's put me on to is they are thinking of using blockchain to record predictions of analysts mm-hmm. for the stock market because right. analysts are so often wrong, <laughs> but nobody really knows that, and all they read is that the analyst has said this, and mm-hmm. then that can that can be a market mover. Sure. Well, if if suddenly all these predictions that people are making just aren't occurring, yeah, and you can get a rating, yeah, 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 of like your accuracy, yeah. A very easy, almost like a like a stats for a sports. Yeah, and and this is worth pointing out. The only people who would oppose that are the analysts who are Frequently either wrong. either cheating or less competent. Yeah, and I think <laughs> that level of accountability could be very good for our society. Yeah, right. Is is are your not not do I like what you're saying, but is your what you're saying factual? Well, and this is why another reason why I resist labels is that. There's no counterfactual or there's no falsifiability. So the people who I often end up admiring the most intellectually are the people who 
will give you a detailed uh, explanation of what would be the case for their perspective to be incorrect. Yeah. So they lay out the conditions of their own inaccuracy that are traceable to things in the world, right? And labels can never do that because, you know, they're just, they're always vague enough, right? Well, How a, do it, I become non-toxic? <laughs> like, right. what's the path out of being toxic? What's the path well, out that, of being the thing is untrustworthy? The, a label gives the power <laughs> to the labeler, exactly. not to the yeah. person who's labeled. And, and I guess... Well, it's like you said about brands, and I mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, but a big the issue that I think you have with that is who decides what the brand is. And it's just used as a cudgel by people in authority to say, well, it, it, they don't need to explain it. Well, it, it makes me feel, okay, well, so like there's obviously a psychological and mental category for everything that people project out. So for example, people are going to have their opinions about really true fiction. I'm not <laughs> so naive as to think there isn't a mental representation as striking or as unstriking as it might be for anyone listening, right? Like, obviously you're going to, the difference is how hard do I work to contrive a particular mental representation for a listener versus how much am I willing to let it arise organically through their own listening? Right. Right. And so it's not that I have a problem with a mental representation. What I have is trying to manipulate that mental representation by, trying to make something seem it, like it could be more positive than it is for one reason or another for my own gain or for your own gain yeah. or for your own perception. Because like essentially to me, and I know that this is a radically different thing, making your own brand is just, you're just further down the path of propaganda. Yeah. And the end of that path is Goebbels. <laughs> yeah. Right? If you get enough power with your branding, you're Goebbels. Right. And that's the issue I have with it. Not that I don't think people can have a mental representation of the world, of course. No, well, like, yeah. right? everyone does, yeah. <laughs> and so it's not even that I don't want... I want people to have their own mental representations as we go through our own prerogatives. Right. Right? Because I think that that's actually how you have authentic interplay with others. And yeah. so that's always been my... There's a confirmation bias I look for <laughs> right there. <laughs> there we go. I just have one last note on Andrew, and this might not be like a, I don't, I don't really know how to even think about this, but so it's the, it's the right at the end. It's when Cheyenne and Kali reveal to him that he's Andrew, right? It's the moment he realizes he's Andrew, not Teddy. And there's something kind of so sad in that moment because that is the moment where Andrew Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character becomes aware of the fact that he's been lying to himself. Like there's just this like cascading dumb. Well, like like, things are crumbling. Everything's crumbling. Right. And so what he's left there, it it seems to me like he just feels so worthless at that point. And I couldn't, like, I obviously have a lot of sympathy for him in that moment. And I'm just like, man, there's something there's, I think probably part of the reason people don't want their, confirmation biases disconfirmed is because there's something kind of humiliating and there's a feeling of worthlessness around admitting you're living a lie i think that's right? also psychologically traumatizing right? exactly because yeah the the assumptions upon which you have built and in his case the last mm-hmm. however many days or years of his life mm-hmm. are false yeah but also, what does that say about 
what you did during that time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Well, yeah, you, you, you were wrong time. and you wasted time. And so this is probably a great segue into talking a little bit about Shayan and Kali is that they had to have known this because they're, you know, medical psychological professionals. They're going to know that that's going to be the feeling of what someone like Teddy has when that happens. And so they're there therapeutically. Okay, you're down in the mud now. You're about as worthless and worm-like as you can feel. And instead of instead of taking like the warden route of like, okay, now I'm going to destroy you because you're going to be violent. They want to put a hand out to pull you back up, to bring you back into the world, for lack of a better term, right? And so that's kind of, that was like an admiration I felt for those two doctors. Is yeah, that- they're trying so hard. They're, they're, they go to a... Ex- excessive lengths yeah. to try to, to pull him out of this. And it's interesting because we don't really know at the end whether he was f- pulled out or not like from his last comment. Well, yeah, actually, I mean, maybe, maybe there's no was... way to know. My interpretation of the end of the movie was, oh, he has managed to build his defense mechanisms back up, right? I think my interpretation of it is he's so tormented. Yeah. That he doesn't want to think anymore. Yeah. He actually well, wants and, the lobotomy. Yeah, and I watched a YouTube video like a few days later that said, well, I think this is what happens to him. And I'm like, oh, geez. Yeah, that's, that makes sense too, right? Like he, so he pretends like he's actually, he's actually Andrew. He pretends like he's Teddy again so that they will lobotomize him so he doesn't have to live through the pain. Because he doesn't want to live as a monster. Yeah. He wants to die a good man. Yeah. So I guess he and I feel the same. <laughs> I guess but so. so like, I mean, Kali even earlier in the movie had this line, this institution is a moral fusion between law and order and clinical care, right? So I don't know, like what kind of lessons or thoughts are there around the kind of ways to try to be there for someone when they are feeling they're most worthless? Like what oh. are some ways... Like, obviously, maybe we both agree that that is a good thing. But, like, what are some, I don't know. Like, how does that work? That just seems like such a difficult. <laughs> well, there's, uh, I think, uh, yeah, we talked about this on the Minority Report one, but it stuck with me. Mm. Um, is this article I read by someone about addiction. Right. And uh, one of the things he said is, no matter, like, you can't pull someone out of their own addiction. Like, but I, I think that's why they call it therapeutic, right? Is you're, what you're trying to do, and I mean, is this not a mental addiction? Really, mm-hmm. he's addicted to this story, yeah, because it's it's taking away the pain in mm-hmm. the same way that maybe for a heroin addict, you know, it's taking away the pain. Like one of the best things I ever read about heroin was from a heroin addict, and he and he said it doesn't actually. It's not like this euphoric state. It's just everything is better. Yeah, just a little bit better. Mm-hmm. That's like, well, if everything could be just a little bit better all the time, mm-hmm. why wouldn't you just want everything to be better? Mm-hmm. And so, why is it better to help someone out of that than just let them live there? Well, I think. I mean, this is, the, I think, the question that really he asked at the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, why do we want people to face reality if they can't bear reality? I guess. I guess in the movie it was kind of an imperative because of how violent he was getting to other and other patients in the institution. Right. Yeah. They weren't doing it to all the patients. Right. No. Going back to your question, why, why is it better? Why is reality better than our fictions? I think the answer to that is if you're living in rebellion to reality, you're going to 
know that on a subconscious level. And we see that with Teddy slash Andrew in that these dreams keep breaking through. Mm-hmm. You know, he may be, be able to lie himself lie to himself when he's awake, but his subconscious is, is haunting him. Mm-hmm. Uh, this image of his daughter is haunting him. Mm-hmm. Reality is, is he hasn't dealt with the problem, right? And really, on a psychological level, I think the only way, path to freedom mm-hmm. is acceptance. Yeah. And, and I think you're right. Like those dream things that are happening to him, those would be the things that are really important to the doctors and the psychologists. I'm probably thinking oh, no. for, well, you for said- most other people, the reason to pull people back into reality is because of how much they're damaged they're doing to other people. That, yes, <laughs> or themselves. But number one, I think, is that the only path to freedom mm-hmm. is acceptance. Yeah. Right? Like, the people who are the most peaceful and the most happy and even the people who, who face death mm-hmm. in the best way are the people who have accepted it. Those who, who, who refuse to accept the natural order of things. Yeah. Those who refuse to accept reality are the most tormented and mm-hmm. broken. And like the people who, who can't handle suffering. Mm-hmm. It's not that that they're weaker or stronger than the people who can, it's legitimately that something in them rebels against reality and then they're working backwards right. to saying, well, I don't want to deal with reality, so I need I need something hmm. to yeah. push it away. And in the t- case of Teddy or Andrew, his way of dealing with reality is to completely reject it. Mm-hmm. But I think... Most people have little tricks that they use to uh, to make reality a little softer. Sure, yeah. Maybe, right? Yeah. Oh, and- well. <laughs> why do I spend as much time as I do watching Netflix? Yeah. Like any little thing that we do to take the edge off. Yeah. Well, why why do we create these intricate social realities that give us time to work on things constantly right like mm-hmm. or why do we even have the bobbles and things like some people devote their entire lives to creating video games yeah but yeah it's all a video game it's a mm-hmm. story mm-hmm. right yeah why do we tell stories well i mean there's different answers to that question yeah but i think one of the answers that i've always thought is the truest is we need a bulwark against existence <laughs> the void yeah yeah yeah, no, that makes sense. We need some, like, humans are pattern-seeking beings. Mm-hmm. And I guess the therapeutic approach that these doctors are taking is to cushion Andrew from all of the devastation he's rotting on himself and others through his delusion, but also let him know that there can be, I guess, good <laughs> lower-level lies he can tell himself to get through the day. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right? probably. Like, like you're, it's not that you're telling yourself a story; it's that you're telling one that's too extreme. Yeah, and it's taking over, and you can't figure out a way to proportion yourself. It's like an attachment as opposed to a reverie. Yeah, <laughs> right. And so, well, you've, that's you've kinda... you no longer re- even recognize it as a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Right. That's that's a hugely important category psychologically and that's kind of what the theme of this episode has been i guess is i usually say like the only problem with an optical illusion is if you don't know it's an optical illusion 
the moment you know it's an optical illusion, you can still fall back into seeing the illusion and enjoying it even. <laughs> yes. It's just as long as there's that other element of your brain that can, if pushed, say, well, yeah, I actually know in a sense it's not real. Yeah. But it's the not real that I'm choosing to fall into for this period of time. And the danger with Teddy is that essentially he has a psychological illusion he doesn't know is an illusion. Yeah. And that is, he's broken with reality. Yeah. And I think that, again, like maybe I'm saying this a couple of times, the therapeutic thing those doctors are doing is letting him realize that so that he can like rein it in a bit. Yeah. <laughs> to, to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Before we, uh, there's a couple other things I wanted to, to talk about with um, a couple other characters, but I, one of my, f- one of the things I enjoyed the most, I, I think probably the thing you, any person would enjoy the most watching this through other than like knowing whatever it was doing is just seeing how inept Mark Ruffalo's character is as a marshal. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. Like this scene at the beginning where he's just no good at handing over his gun. Yeah. He doesn't yeah. know how. <laughs> right. And then um, there's so many, like there's a few references throughout the movie to do- there's Dr. Cheyenne who's been off on vacation and the camera just goes to him. <laughs> It's like okay, and then and then some of the other inmates who know who Doctor Shane is like, wait, what? Yeah, they're like, oh, oh we got to play this game. But yeah, it's just really funny. So, what did you think about this? So this other guy in the in the movie, George Noyce, who's the inmate or the I don't want to say inmate, the patient who te- uh, Andrew beats up because he was the one who was telling him that he's Andrew and that he killed his mm. wife and his wife killed his kids. I don't really know how to think about this. He's the only one that tells Teddy the truth. Yeah. <laughs> until the end. Yes. Right. Until the turn of the movie and the climax and the big reveal. He's the only one who said, no, you're Andrew. This is you. Yeah. Which is why Andrew beat him up. Why he's separated. But in this whole, uh, what is, what would you even call this? This massive apparatus that they've made to help it. Andrew slash Teddy realized this. No one else is like telling him the literal truth, right? right? They're trying to get it through role playing. But George tells him the literal truth and this makes him angry and he doesn't bite on it, I guess. But I don't know. I thought that was interesting. Like, what do you think about that? Hmm. Can you, like, what is there to think about that in terms of like this other inmate or <laughs> patient says, you got to let her go, right? Like, it just, it seems... It, to me, George's approach seemed like the therapy of a friend right? versus the therapy of a professional who can be more intricate. Right. It didn't work, right? <laughs> no. So the professional worked and the friend didn't. But what else could George do? Like, George doesn't have the capacity to I don't think he could do role. anything else. Yeah. And I guess that sparks, that question sparks another question. What is the most loving thing to do mm. when someone you care about is living in delusion? Well, okay. Here's a, what my first thought was on that question. So Immanuel Kant has this kind of idea in his work on ethics that you can't be morally culpable for something you can't do. Right. Right? So if someone is drowning in Vancouver Ecuador, right, yeah. or Ecuador, I can't flap my arms, get there, and save them. So I'm not on the hook. <laughs> right? You're not on the hook for things you can't do physically. Right. And I wonder if there's a parallel here where a person can't be on the hook for providing help that they can't provide psychologically, mentally, or emotionally. Right. 
because George can't. George does what he can. He says, "No, no, no! You're not Teddy. It's a lie." Like George can't. It seems to me, he can't perform those higher order functions that Kali and Shahan can to help him role play. But he can say, "Your wife's dead. Mm-hmm. You killed her. She killed your kids." Whatever he said beforehand, right? Yeah. Snap out of it. I miss my friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I wonder if there's a, some sort of correlation there in terms of like, what's the better way? Well, maybe the better way is what you can do. Maybe if you care well, about a person. Maybe that maybe that's why intention matters so much. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to outcome. Yeah. Right. I think that's I think, why our intuitions are often pulled that way. Yeah, because really we can't all we again it's like Marcus Aurelius said, right? You you control your mind, you don't control external events, mm-hmm. you know, know this and you'll find strength. Well, okay. Yeah. Like but this is often a, a problem that people face is they is they look at the outcomes and they can blame themselves. Mm-hmm. Even if it wasn't like a kid so often will blame themselves for their parents' divorce or, you know, or, or you know, in the tragic situations where children die. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, all, it's basically a trope, but like even from Minority Report, like the marriage falls apart because there's some kind of blame that goes around on both sides because mm-hmm. of the pain. Right. I think we would all do ourselves a great service to be a little bit easier on ourselves. Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. Cause there are going to be, or, or let's say in the, tr- in the horribly tragic moments, uh, where someone we love commits suicide. Mm. Right. What did I do enough? Was I there? Well, like at the end of the day, you have to come to terms with the fact that you can't control other people mm. and you can't save everybody, but you could try. And I guess really that's all we can ask of ourselves. Yeah, no, that's nice. That's that's a good point. I guess this is a kind of, if like to make it about people, it's it's another kind of degrees of freedom thing. Like, how much freedom do we think someone like George has mentally? Right. Well, much much less than Ben Kingsley or Mark Ruffalo do to be this, and that's why I guess we seed the ideally we seed the meritocratic titles to people who can exemplify the highest degrees of freedom yeah to achieve these things so like that's why they separated andrew and george is because george told him the truth but what else could george do if you're george what else can you do and you see him suffering and you Mm -hmm. i mean the impression we got is that he says nasty things to people so it might have been let's be fair true george might have been torment trying to torment uh andrew yeah he could have been like it's true, but if we take it out of the, the narrative, yeah, someone like George, even with best intentions, couldn't do anything more than that. No. Because he doesn't have the capacity exactly. to. It's that Kantian idea is worth attributing to mental freedom for people, yeah. too, in terms yeah. of what we would hold them to or not to. And I mean, that's this is why I think we have expressions like, well, you know better. Yeah. I'm more mad at you than that person because you, you know, know better. better. Yeah. <laughs> So we develop all of these shorthand heuristics for our more complicated <laughs> our psychological states. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, this is maybe the last big point, but we can't not talk about it. There's that great scene when Teddy comes back up from the cliffs and the warden is driving yes. in the car. And he's like, if I and tried to bite out your eye, could you stop me? Yeah, yeah. And, it, well, 
their their entire conversation essentially cashes out into the comment, can my violence conquer your violence? If the constraints of society were removed, you would tear me apart. And so um, the warden has the kind of anti-therapeutic <laughs> approach yeah. to dealing with this. He's he's like kind of, he reminds me of the um, Jack and Nicholson character in A Few Good Men where it's like, you can't handle the truth. Yeah. We are the men who stand on the wall while you are a feat at your parties talking about freedom while we're out there defending it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? The mm-hmm. warden is of that kind of mentality of that. I don't even want to say alpha male. I just want to say mm, that kind of part of the masculine temperament that is good at fights and the is wa- ostensibly think- on the good <laughs> team, but is always looking for it and we'll even find it where it doesn't necessarily have to be. Yeah. <laughs> right? So there's like that dichotomy there and then that dilemma that Teddy is in that he doesn't even know he's in is that the warden is really only letting this experiment go. It, it, th- this ex- entire experiment is only happening at the kind of humor of the warden. Yeah. <laughs> right? And he has his opinion set about Andrew. He's not changing his mind because he wants Andrew to fit his opinion. And then there's this also other Nietzschean line that says, when we have to change our opinion about another person, we hold the effort against them. Right. <laughs> and so right. the warden doesn't want to hold the effort of changing his opinion about Andrew against. No. Well, he doesn't want to have to go through the ma- I mean, we all kind of know someone who maybe we didn't like and then started being positive and since our original anchoring bias was we didn't like them, it's annoying for yeah. them to not be as bad as we think they are. It's true. It's true. <laughs> and so we hold that against that. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. My violence, will my violence beat your violence? Like, I'm sure you can guess that that is a little bit too reductive for my tastes. <laughs> but what do you no, think I about mean, all that? It's reductive and primal, but it's also, I think it's a question we all still ask ourselves. And the answer often determines how we view ourselves, right? Like a lot of my friends have got into Brazilian jiu-jitsu and they love it because one of the reasons they love it is, I guess this is very primal, but it's like walking down the street, they're not afraid anymore, right? Just on on a base psychological level, they know that they have the tools in their toolbox. Should violence break out, they know what to do, Mm -hmm. right? Which is not necessarily how everyone feels. Yeah, And I, I have a friend who... He, I would say he wasn't living up to his potential in life and it was kind of like floating through life and he started to take martial arts and it totally transformed his life, right? Mm. And it was because it gave him confidence in a primal area that uh, that then had cascading effects throughout his life. But that still sounds like you're talking about something more internal. But the internal is my violence, right? At the end of the day, the reason they feel confident is because they they know that should violence break out, Mm. they have the tools. Yeah, but I still think there's an extra step the warden is taking here where he is looking for it. True. (laughs) Like he's he's going to people, in this case Teddy, to say, I know you will be this way, and I want you to know I will beat you. Right, right. (laughs) Which seems different than what you're describing in your friends. Unless any of your friends are going out and picking fights. (laughs) Uh, just to show that they're I don't tougher. Know. I mean, I was one of those people and have been in my life. I don't know what it is. Yeah, but don't you, like, I guess what I'm trying to think about here is that there is obviously a level where defense is necessary, right? But 
I think what I'm, what I guess my intuition with this warden is that part of that kind of alphaness or that way of seeing the world is pasting over an insecurity that says, oh, if the Cheyennes and Collies are right and we can take a therapeutic approach, I'm going to be less relevant. Right. And I don't want to be less relevant. Oh, there's certainly so I I think need, a lot of people. I need to bring out the beast in you to show my utility to the world. Yeah. And so the part of it where it's like disciplining yourself, learning jujitsu, becoming like a better version of yourself, for lack of a better term, and being ready for when trouble comes to you, I totally get. But I think what I'm what I would critique is that extra level of Well this goes back to looking s- for it. Something you've said previously where you're like, you know, the police need criminals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So the warden like, needs the to violent <laughs> need the violent, right? Yeah. Well I mean, presumably this entire institution. What was the name of the institution again? I guess we haven't said it the whole episode. Yeah, I forget. I don't remember either. <laughs> anyway. It seems unimportant. <laughs> I mean, it's getting its funding from somewhere. Well, right? it said that they're, yeah, they're get. that was the other thing they figured out that the funding was from like the, the anti-communism. Sure. Oh, uh, yeah. Right. Well, even if not, the, Whatever, the yeah. government is giving this place some money for yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so... Let's say you get a report that says, oh, this patient beat the shit out of this patient. And then the governmental overlords will be like, well, why is this happening? Uh, fix this. Yeah. And then the institution gets to say, okay, well, we got the therapeutic approach through <laughs> the things, which seems more humane. But then there's the warden approach. It's like, well, let's keep him in line with the stick. Yeah. And the warden clearly has an interest in doing the stick way because that's what he's good at. And that's what he knows. Yeah. And he just, I mean, he's not even in the movie very much and it's the same actor who plays Buffalo Bill in silence of the lambs. It just, I just got no impression that he was interested in developing the therapeutic approach True. because then he's not as relevant. And that, I don't know. That left a bad taste in my mouth. Fair. That scene. But it's just, it's too primal. I get it. But the whole f- idea that we can help people with mental illness depends on us being able to be beyond our primal reactions to things. Because our primal reaction to Teddy, if he's being totally delusional, is to just kill him. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Here's a danger. We are unable to anticipate his future uh, behavior. That is a big liability. Goodbye. Well, hang, yeah, like you hang murderers, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. As opposed to, I would argue, one of the developments of civilization is to be able to help people like that. Yeah. Which is kind of the last point I wanted to make was um, Andrew describes his wife like this. She had an insect inside her brain. And it, it seemed to me to perfectly encapsulate the tragedy of mental health. And so it's like, how do you help these kind of people? (laughs) Right? And it's like interesting that you brought up earlier, Andrew blames himself for not getting her help earlier because he did see the signs earlier. Well, she even said it to him, right? Yeah. So now that's like cautionary tale, I guess. But, you know, like, as you know, my dad worked for most of his, well, most of my life. He worked with people with special needs and mental health issues. And obviously, most of the time, they're absolutely lovely to be around. But if there's a meltdown, it's bad. And then you just, you're caught in this feeling of helplessness and pity and sadness, all kind of wrapped into one where you're just trying to like 
not have anyone get massively harmed. Yeah. You know, and I don't know, like, it's one of the hardest problems, I think, is like how to help people like this. Yeah. You know, I think I guess my final thought on all of that and this would be I'm grateful for the people who do. Yeah. Right. Who dedicate themselves to this problem. Mm-hmm. It's not a problem that uh, I feel personally able to address. Mm-hmm. But like, thank God there are people who do. Well, I mean, if there's a hero of this movie, it's probably Dr. Kali. Yeah. Which is funny because he seems kind of distant and weird. And it's, it is kind of amazing. This is just good storytelling, but how the whole movie is set up to make it rational like all of Teddy's paranoia about the experiments are rational, right? They have a German doctor there who was yeah. who was rescued from the Nazis kind of thing. And just the aesthetic of the entire uh, institution looks like it would be a good place for... There's like, well, we found our patient who went away. No, what? <laughs> like, you didn't tell us? Mm-hmm. You know? They're, the doctors seem kind of interested in what the marshals are doing, but then not at all. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what? Like, like, even if you didn't know the twist, watching this movie... The whole time you're like, something's not right. Yeah. Something is not right. And so it's kind of unsettling. This is a very unsettling movie. Very. And I think, yeah, I think that's the, maybe it's addressing the unsettling nature of mental illness. Mm, Yeah. Well, I enjoyed the foreshadowing where the guard says he's never seen uh, Marshall's badge before. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, that's a little joke. I think the line, though, that I feel like is worth ending with or leading into final thoughts is um wounds can create monsters yeah teddy well andrew i, I want to call him teddy i know because the whole movie he's teddy even though his name's andrew he just he gets so wounded and he gets so wounded by things that aren't his fault like things we can't say are his fault like yeah, basically everything that happens to him up to the murder of his wife mm-hmm. is just horrible things that have happened to him yeah. in his life i guess a kind of a parallel that i've been feeling a little bit with all of this isolation coronavirus is that maybe there are just some things that we can't blame anyone for. Yeah. That's like a bitter pill that's almost intolerable, I think. So obviously the the easy target in all of this is, is the government doing the right thing? Are they doing too much or too little? What I don't hear a lot of is like, regardless of what the government does, plagues will have their way with us. Yeah. Like obviously the government can mandate more or less, but like viruses predate government and there's just not a lot of, I don't get a sense in the world right now. There's a, there's this much of this idea of like, there's just some tragedy in existence, no matter what we do. I know. And people don't <laughs> want to accept that. No, they want to be protected from that. Well, again, because of the search for blame as far as the search for meaning, because our minds need meaning, we, we need to hold someone accountable because... Uh, it's just, it's like a syntax error, right? It's like trying to divide something by zero. There's a plague, it's hitting. It doesn't discriminate in terms of, like it's very contagious for everyone. And that's the way it is, regardless of what your government does. Yep. That kind of letting go of control, I think was very common in historical ages. That is different now. For some reason, we live in an era that thinks that we can be in control of everything. Because we are well we not everything but like but so so much much more so much more yeah we're in control of we're in control of the weather in our in our houses yeah and and so i guess this kind of like wounds create monsters idea is um 
to realize that maybe like the only actual I guess I'm realizing this that the only alternative to the violence is therapy and the therapeutic approach to wounds and trying to apply that sooner as soon as you can right the best way to be therapeutic the best time to be therapeutic was yesterday (laughs) second best time is today Today. I love I love that (laughs) and really I think that for myself and I know for you is kind of our approach to life is Mm. like yeah a lot of this is therapy for ourselves. Yeah, well, never mind the specific content of a podcast. Podcasting has been such a, a godsend for us because it's just so incredibly healthy to say what you think. Yeah, <laughs> just to talk about <laughs> this it. This is why people go see therapists, just the old cliche of lying on a couch and talking about your problems. Yeah. It's not because you want them solved. It just feels good to say them. Yeah, you just <laughs> feel better afterwards. And exactly. you can think about them more, maybe. I think... Some people, myself, definitely in this category, <laughs> think through talking mm. um, yeah. way better than they do just sitting there in their own mullion things over in their own brain. So, oh yeah, this is so, it's speaking things out loud is crucial to thinking. Yeah. Any last thoughts on the movie? Well, I guess if I if I could try to articulate in two sentences what I was trying to get at the, at the beginning, yeah, is it's easy to think an individual is insane because they are obviously divorced from our agreed upon reality. But I think the next order level of thinking Mm. is to realize that that insanity isn't limited to individuals and to ensure that you are constantly questioning Mm -hmm. your truth claims. Yeah. And I think, I think there's a great book by Peter Berger called in praise of doubt. Oh yeah. And I think, uh, I think too often our heroes are full of conviction, Mm. but there's that great line, the best lack all conviction and the worst are full of passionate intensity. Mm -hmm. That isn't just because the worst are filled with passionate intensity, but maybe Mm. the worst of us is when we refuse to question our own Mm -hmm. presuppositions. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That was way more than... Two sentences. But. It was two sentences at heart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. I I enjoyed watching this movie again. It's fun knowing the ending and watching it. You just see how everything is kind of contrived for him in all of it. Uh, I loved even how, like, the beginning, you're kind of foreshadowed by it, by how much he's uncomfortable by the water, <laughs> right? Like, why would a U.S. Marshal be thrown off by a boat yeah. kind of thing? Like, it's just, there's so, this movie is maybe one of the best ever that heavily hints at its plot twist without giving it away. Yes. Throughout the whole movie, I would say. Man, I didn't even think of that. Of course, water makes him sick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I and mean, that's nice. Right? Yeah. I guess, like, the movie's great, but I just, reaching out to help people before you think, like, if you have any doubt about whether or not you should reach out to help someone or talk to them, the the doubt itself means you should. Yeah. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Right? So, this has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name's Luke Mason. And my name's uh, David Parker. See you later. See you later.